This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. You know, in the Old Testament, as we, as we prepare for the study this morning, in, in the Old Testament, uh, there's a lot of stories that get turned into uh, children's Bible stories, and one of the most common ones is Noah. And it seems like a really cute uh, little Bible story where this man built a boat, and he's on this floating petting zoo, and all the animals are always smiling, and it just seems like a really, uh, you know, really happy picture of, of events that took place in the Bible. And I understand why the children's stories are watered down like that to, to make it more uh, digestible for a, a child and help them remember things. But the problem is, is that we sometimes don't advance from those concepts and we get those things stuck in our minds from a young age that the story was just some you know, warm, fuzzy thing that took place. And, and uh, really, when you examine the, the uh, depth of the story, it is much more serious, it is much darker, it is much more heavy uh, when we look at the details um, that the scriptures provide. And so this morning, we're gonna look at those details as we study about Noah and the curse of the ground. Um, and and you're, you may be wondering, because you, you may not be familiar with this concept of the curse of the ground being part of the story of Noah, but it is. And as we begin examining this, the story of Noah actually begins in the story of Adam, and, and particularly right after the fall. You see, God had created Adam and Eve to be made in his own image. They were to be image bearers of God's holiness in this world. They were given a charge to have dominion over all the creatures. They were given charge to uh, bear fruit and multiply in the earth. And they were supposed to represent holiness and, and create more holiness as they create more generations of people. And that was the purpose of man. Of course, we know in the story of, of creation that Satan comes along and deceives Adam and Eve and, and causes Eve to eat of the fruit and she gives to her husband also and he eats the fruit. That they were commanded to not touch it or they would die. And so they introduce consequences into the world. And it begins in Genesis chapter 3, where we'll, we'll begin here and look at. It says in, in verse 17, And Adam, unto Adam, God said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of thy face thou shalt, eat, uh, thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So man who was made in the image of God has now fallen, and the, the consequence of that is death. Sin has brought death into the world, and particularly for Adam and the rest of humanity that lived before the flood, God says this curse of the ground is imposed on you now because of you. And it's going to cause it's going to cause your work to be much more severe. It's going to cause your work to be much more difficult. And the ground is not going to produce as easily because now thorns and thistles, it's going to bring forth. And you're going to eat in the sweat of your brow. That means he's going to work hard for the things and the food that they, that they uh, produce from the ground. But this ground now is cursed. And this was a, a plague that affected the rest of humanity from that time because they lived off of the fruit of the ground. They lived off of the, the herbs of the field. You know, prior to the flood, when you look at the account of Genesis, it's not said that man ate the animals because there was no death. And so uh, 
And so they ate, all the animals and even people ate of the vegetation that, that God had provided. And now it's going to be very difficult for them to produce that. Um, of course, that changes after the flood, and we'll see that. Um, but as you go on, what you see now happen to humanity from this point on is sin begins to grow. And it begins to affect Adam and Eve's children. Cain murders his brother Abel for having a better sacrifice, a more excellent sacrifice. Out of jealousy and envy, he's enraged and he kills his brother. And so sin affects their children. And then it grows and it grows in, in the world as generations uh, continue to grow and time goes on. And we read about these consequences of sin in the world. And in the genealogy of Adam it, that the Bible gives us in the book of Genesis, it describes to us how God gave Eve another son named Seth. And that name Seth is like a substitute for Abel, who was the righteous line of, from Adam and Eve. And so now Seth is reestablished as this line of righteousness. Seth bore Enos, and it says that in those days men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so from that time, there's this righteous line. And as you go down through that particular branch of the family, we ultimately come to the time where Noah is born. And he's born to a man named Lamech. So in Genesis chapter 5, verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah. And that name Noah means rest. And his father, when he's born, he holds him and he says, This same, this child, shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. So you see, when Noah is born, Lamech prophesies that this son, this, this promised child, is going to bring rest from the curse of the ground that Adam had caused because of sin. So Noah is a very important figure in, in the story of humanity and the story of, of this curse of the ground that God had imposed. And Noah was going to bring rest from that difficult labor that was imposed upon all humanity at that point. Now again, sin had increased to, the, to such a point that it came time for God to do something about this sin. He could no longer tolerate the evil that was going on in the world because mankind who he created to be image bearers of his glory had now become so corrupt. How corrupt? Well, it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 through 7, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his, at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So sin increases to such a point that God now promises to wash it all away, destroy it all. Um, and, he, and he chooses to do that in the form of a flood that he's going to bring upon the world. Um, and can you imagine, you know, we think about how it feels like the world is in such a uh, state of chaos in our day. But imagine living in that time of Noah. Uh, because Noah and his family, the only, only eight people were survived from this wicked world. But imagine every person on the planet, only evil continually. I don't think we could bear to live in such a world. And God couldn't bear to let the world be in such a state. And so he knew that he had to do something about that. And so God foretells of a destruction that's coming. He's going to destroy them all. But thankfully... Noah was a righteous man. In Genesis chapter 6, 8 through 9, 
it actually, it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and it talks about Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And so he was just a very good, God-fearing man. And that makes me think about how he comes from that line of righteousness that men were calling on the name of the Lord. And so Noah had received that and it had been passed down to him. And he took that seriously. He was a God-fearing man. Um, And so because of this, because of his character, God chose him and he found grace, it says, in the eyes of the Lord. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So he foretells of this destruction to Noah. There is a, this flood that is coming, and I'm going to destroy them from off the face of the earth. And so God gives Noah, because of God's grace towards Noah, God gives him instructions on how to avoid this destruction that's going to come upon all the earth. And so he gives him the, the details that he needs to know in order to avoid this time. And so in Genesis chapter 6, 14, 14 through 21, we hear about and see what God gives, uh, the instructions that God gives to Noah, and they're very specific, very detailed instructions. He tells him to make rooms. He tells him to, to use a certain type of material. He gives him the dimensions that it must be made in. It was 300 cubits long by 50 cubits wide uh, and 30 cubits high. And if you kind of do the math, it's 515 feet long, uh, 85 foot wide, and 51 feet high. So this was a very big vessel that God gives him, but he gives him all the dimensions that he needs. He gives them the types of materials to be used. He was to use gopher wood. He was to pitch it within and without with pitch. That's a way to seal that so it can not only uh, to to seal it so that makes it waterproof. Uh, He gives them the design that it must have. It has to have three stories and it has to have a window at the top and it has to have a door on the side. God gives him all of these specific instructions and he gives him the purpose, of course is this vessel, if you follow these instructions and you build this vessel and you're in this vessel, it's going to save you from the destruction that is to come. Um, And so uh, there's some other interesting details, you know, in the story of Noah that we that we can look at. And, um, you know, often we think just I think as a shorthand, we say Noah took two of every animal and it's actually he took he took seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals. So he didn't just take two of every animal. In some cases, he took seven of, of every animal, or the clean uh, particularly. You can find that in Genesis chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, uh, where it gives that detail. But what was Noah's response when God gives him the warning? He says a judgment is coming. The world is going to be destroyed. Here's how you can avoid it. What was Noah's response? Well, in Genesis 6.22, the Bible says that Noah, thus did Noah, according to all God commanded him, so did he. He listened. He obeyed the commandments of God. He did exactly what God told him to do, followed all these instructions down to the detail that God gave him, and, and he did that. And so he spared. Um, now, I, I used to, this got stuck in my mind because if in Genesis 5, it tells us that Noah was 500 years old when he had his son his first son, um, and, and then reading the next verse that we'll read, I thought it took Noah 100 years to build the ark, but I think if you actually do the math, it still took a very long time. Uh, probably, I think, between 40 and 75 years were some, um, like some ranges. If you kind of do the math of the ages of his kids when the flood came and you, and you just look at the details there, it just took a long time, decades. It took decades for him to build this ark. And so finally, 
when Noah is 600 years old, the flood happens. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So now this event has taken place. God says it's going to rain and the world is going to flood. They have never seen rain up to this point because the ground was watered differently. And, and it was uh, the water, and so there was a mist that came up from the ground. That's how the, the earth was watered. And they had not seen rain up to this point. And they had never seen a flood. And never anything uh, to this magnitude, of course. And so, so he's 600 years old when this happens. And imagine everyone around them now terrified of this event. Um, but something interesting to note about this ark, Noah did what God instructed him to do. He followed it down to the T. But yet Noah could not seal himself into this ark when the time came for, the, for this salvation to take place. Uh, from this destruction. It was God who had to close that door of the ark because Noah couldn't do that. Genesis chapter 7, 15 through 16. And you imagine, I mean, it's such a huge door. And they went in unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. It was God's power who had to seal Noah into that ark and close that vessel's door. Uh, Noah was incapable of doing that, though he followed the instructions. He was un- incapable of closing that door. And if, and if it was up to Noah just to try on his own, I don't think he would have made it. But thankfully, it was, it was God that gave the instruction, Noah that obeyed him, and it was God who performed this act of saving him from this flood um, by closing him in. And in verse 21 to 22, it says, All flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life and all that was in the dry land died. Imagine that. It gives us the order. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, there was a similar order here that of all the things that God created, the fowls and the creeping things and the cattle and the ocean animals and the things in the dry land, and now all flesh that moved upon the earth is dead, including the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, who was supposed to be his image bearers, now they've, they've been destroyed in this flood. And can you imagine the death of all things? Can you imagine people running towards the ark? Can you imagine when, the, when they realize the ark is shut, the banging on the side of the ark, the pleading that they would have had, begging for their children to be saved, begging for themselves to be spared, people attempting to climb upon the ark, perhaps? as quickly as they could, maybe people running to high ground futilely in vanity because there was no escape from this judgment. It says that the flood covered the highest mountain, uh, I think it was even uh, 20 feet above the highest mountain in the the world. And so there was no escape from this and the time was up and all things died. All things except that which was in the ark. That was preserved, and life was spared, and this was a chance for them to start all over again for all of humanity and all of the creation. It was a reset for for all of life. Now, it took about uh, a year after, so it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and 
and the world flooded. And then from that time to the time that the water started to abate and things started to dry, there was a whole process that Noah used by sending birds out to see if they would return. And that was kind of his indicator of whether or not the, the ground was dry yet. And finally, it came to pass after a whole year of living inside that ark that it was time for them to come out of the ark. Uh, but here's a picture of, of what we described with Noah being put inside this vessel, and he's raised up as the waters destroy the corruption of the world. That's a picture that we find here in the story of Noah that is connected to what we'll talk about as we go on in the study. But Noah is in this vessel and raised up from corruption. And finally, after a year in that vessel, it says, It came to pass in the 600th and first year, and God spake to Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. These eight people that were on the ark are now commanded to go out after living there for an entire year. Um, And they had prepared and done all the things God had told them to do. And now, because his faithful obedience, and he's shut in, all those that are saved, or all those inside the ark are saved, from, from the floodwaters that destroy the sin below. And when they recede, his family enter into a new life in a cleansed world to start all over again. What a beautiful picture we see there. And, and I, I think you're maybe already making connections there um, as you think about what this story means. When they come off the ark, something interesting happens, and Noah makes a sacrifice to God, and God enters into a covenant with Noah. In Genesis 8, 20, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart was, is evil from his youth. Neither again will I smite anymore every living thing as I have done. So he makes this sacrifice. It is a a beautiful sacrifice. It is well-pleasing to God. He smells this sweet savor of, of the sacrifice that Noah makes, and he says, the curse of the ground is removed. No longer will I curse man and the ground for man's sake. And think about the, the sin that Adam caused, the punishment, the prophecy that Lamech made of this son, Noah, bringing rest to humanity from this curse of the ground, and here it happens. With sin removed and all things renewed, he reissues the blessing and responsibility to humanity, these eight people now, to be image bearers of his glory. Genesis chapter six or nine, verse six through seven, he tells them, Whoso sheds man, man's blood by, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. He reaffirms this, this to him, and even in the in the beginning of the chapter, he reminds them of being made in God's image. And he says, don't shed man's blood because they are made in God's image. And you be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly to the earth and multiply therein. So he repeats this charge that he made to Adam now in this restarted humanity and this restarted creation, this brand new world. He gives that same charge to Noah. And so that was their responsibility. And he enters into a covenant with Noah because of this sacrifice, because of all these events that took place. And now they enter into this promise that he was never going to destroy the world in the same way with the flood. Genesis 9, 11-13, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by waters of a flood, neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, 
This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And so God, in order to give Noah a reassurance, gives him a sign that they are in a covenant, and that sign is the rainbow. That's why the rainbow, uh, that God created the rainbow for us to be able to see during times of, of rain. It's a reminder that God is not going to, going to destroy the world with the flood any longer. And although it's been appropriated in our uh, day and age and has been misused in different ways uh, by different groups, this is the true meaning of that beautiful picture that we see in, in the sky when it rains. Those beautiful colors are a creation of God that shows us and reminds us of this covenant he made between him and the earth. And, and that's the true meaning of, of that. And so he would never destroy the world with a flood, and he puts that rainbow in the cloud. So a lot of details here that we've kind of talked about, but what I want to show you this morning is that there is a parallel in the New Testament because the story of Noah that we just read is the story of Christ. And, and all the details uh, line up there when we look at the story of Christ, the events that took place, the things that he did. It's actually about Christ, and there is a connection there. You see, because what Adam did, bringing the curse of the ground and death upon all humanity, did not just affect his generations to follow and Noah, and, and this curse of the ground was imposed upon them. There was a whole other curse that God was concerned about the most. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Whereof, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This was the true plague that God was worried about, and the curse that God was worried about that had plagued all of humanity. Now we all have to suffer the toil of death, and we, we now have to live a very difficult life as we degrade and eventually get to this point of dying. And so mankind brought sin and death into the world, and that sin is continually increasing. But thankfully, God made a promise of a son that would come to bring us rest from this curse. In Genesis chapter 3.15, right after they sinned, he punishes the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. He's putting conflict between the serpent and between humanity. And, the, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. The seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent or crush his head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The serpent would still get a blow in, but he would not ultimately win because a blow to the head is much more severe and deadly than a blow to the heel. But a human life, a son would come, one would come to bring restoration from this curse. And in Matthew 1.21, we read the prophecy that the angel gives to Mary and Joseph here in the first chapter. And this is the angel confirming this to Joseph and giving him reassurance. But this is everything that God had prophesied up to this point in the days of the Old Testament. And it says, he shall, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus was the promised son that would come to save us from the curse of sin and death. Just as Noah was the promised son that was going to remove the curse of the ground, Jesus removes that curse of death. And just as Noah received instructions, very detailed, very specific things he must do in order to help bring about the salvation, and Noah obeyed those commandments, Jesus had perfect obedience to God in the instructions that he received and the things that he must do in order to bring about 
this salvation uh, from this curse. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. This is describing Jesus leaving the glory of heaven and coming into this world to be born into the flesh. As we read in John chapter 1, he was made manifest in the flesh, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This was Jesus, the things that he must do in order to uh, bring about salvation from this curse. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus obeyed everything that he must do. So did he. Everything that God commanded. So did he. And because of this, he was saved from the destruction that is death. He was saved from the corruption that is death. He was saved just as Noah was in that vessel and raised up from death that was taking place. Jesus was raised up from the death that he was uh, imprisoned by for those short three days. In Acts chapter 2, Peter describes this event. And he says, Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It was not possible for Jesus to stay in that grave his soul to stay in Hades. For David spake concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. More, moreover also my flesh, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither shall thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Of course, that word hell in the King James should be translated Hades, but he says his soul would not be left in that realm of the dead, Hades but he was going to be restored back to his body and he would be raised up from death. And this is what Jesus did. God saved him from death. And having saved him from this death, God had entered into a covenant with him. Remember Noah comes out after all these things take place. He makes a sacrifice to God and God enters a covenant. Jesus gave that sacrifice of death, the perfect sacrifice that God was well pleased with and enters into a covenant and establishes a covenant with his son. He says, Christ, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, it's not something physical, neither by blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh? How much more? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without God, without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What a question. This shows us the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice and how and, how and why it was the perfect sacrifice. In the days of the Old Testament law, those priests used this blood of animals and the ashes of animals and they sprinkled it upon themselves to make themselves holy and, and make themselves be able to approach God. And that was just a cleansing of the flesh. And the question posed here is very important. If that was good enough to make the flesh holy, to be able to approach God, how much better is the blood of Christ that can make your conscience holy? It's so much more powerful. It's so much more meaningful. And he did this once on our sake, and it it obtained eternal redemption for us, giving God the perfect sacrifice. And because of this, 
he says, for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Jesus gives one sacrifice once for all to cover all the sins of those who are in the family of God and those who are covered by uh, the sacrifice and will be forgiven. And he enters into this new covenant with Christ. He establishes a covenant. And he gives him the sign of the covenant, of course. Uh, the sign of that, that covenant being his blood. For Jesus said, as we'll look at here in a moment, he said this is the blood of the New Testament. So the sign of the covenant was the shedding of the blood. Um, now that's death, this, this perfect sacrifice, this salvation that Jesus uh, brought, coming into this vessel of flesh and being raised up from death, it helps to remove the curse. This is the only thing that would satisfy being the curse being removed. So just as the curse of the ground was removed, or the, the ground was cursed because of sin, and it was removed because of Noah's obedience and God's power to remove that curse, Christ came to remove the curse of sin and death, and he brings everlasting peace now through his perfect obedience. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, we read that. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, his creation, the, the humanity that God created, are flesh and blood, so he himself, so also himself likewise took part of the same. He became flesh and blood, as we've read and we talked about. Philippians 2, John chapter 1, there's other verses that talk about Jesus being the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He took part of flesh and blood. Why? That through death, he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He didn't come in some form of some spiritual being. He came and took on him the seed of Abraham, human flesh. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus' sacrifice and his blood, the things that he endured, the things that he obeyed, are the only thing sufficient to bring peace from the curse of death and reconcile us to God. Now, just as Noah, again, a visual representation here, just as Noah was in a vessel crafted through his obedience to God and, and given by design of God, enters into that, is sealed into that vessel by the power of God. He is raised up from the corruption of the world. He is raised up from death that takes place as the water sweeps through and destroys all of humanity and washes these things away. So Jesus was in the vessel of God's design, human flesh. He enters into that. He is sealed back into that body as he's, his soul is taken from Hades. He's sealed into that with the power of God, and he is raised up from death as God's power breaks the power of death and overwhelms the grave. Now, I'm going to add one... Let's add one more layer to this story because what we're seeing here is a pattern that's established in the story of Noah and it repeats itself over and over again. It repeats itself with the story of Jesus and it repeats itself with our story and our place in this story because there's so much significance. We were under the curse of death for as one by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We are under the curse of death. All humanity is 
if they choose to, to not follow after Christ, we, we are under the curse. But Jesus is the one who removes the curse for us. Now is made manifest in 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's given us the information we need to have immortality and life through the message of the gospel. And Jesus has made this possible. He empowers this, uh, this, these instructions that God will give us. And we have commandments to obey if we want to be if we want to experience rest from the curse of death, God gives us commandments to obey. Just the same way he gave Noah commandments to obey. And Noah, what was his response? Because of his faith, he obeyed God. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, but of things not seen as yet, remember it hadn't rained to that point, and they had never seen a flood. Um, so they hadn't seen these things. He was moved with fear, and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So Noah is ultimately saved by his faithfulness and his obedience to God's word. He acts upon that which he believes. He knows this destruction is coming and he obeys. And so if we want to avoid the destruction of death, we want to avoid the, the penalty of death, God gives us instructions. And it's up to us to have obedience to those instructions. And when we do we will be sealed into the vessel of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So we need to have faith, we need to have obedience in the commandments that God gives us. And the flood, when we look at the story of the flood and the ark, it's a representation of our own salvation. Peter makes this very clear in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, you see, Noah was commanded to go into the ark, and the Lord shut him in to raise him up and protect him from death. Jesus was sealed with the power of God and raised up from Hades to eternal life. And so we are joined and sealed into the power of God and raised up from our sins and saved. This is what Peter describes in 1 Peter 3. And this is really where this idea came from of making this, examining this parallel between these three things is what Peter is saying here because he's describing all of these three things. He says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You see, he's, the elements are here, the, the, the message of the gospel, of his death and his resurrection. Jesus died, but he was brought back to life by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Now I'll back up here, and just a, a side note. Uh, maybe I'll talk about this next time, but, but when Jesus went into that place called Hades, that's like a prison. We don't belong there. Separated from our bodies is not how God created us to be. And so he goes into this place, and he teaches this message to them and shows them all these things that they had been waiting for, the faithful and I'm certain that the unfaithful heard it as well when once they were disobedient. Those very people that perished in the flood got to hear what the, the actual story was all about, that Noah was, was preparing this ark and a picture of. <clears throat> and so it was actually a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. But he says, water, eight souls were saved by water. 
How? Because they were in that vessel of God's design that Noah obeyed and created, and then God sealed him in and raised him up from that water while the sinful world is destroyed with the flood waters. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, of course, but this is the answer. This, this phrasing uh, might be confusing, but it's the answer of how to get a good conscience toward God. And so the, the answer of how to do that is baptism. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's empowered by the resurrection of Christ. And so you see there's a, a repeating story here. We're sealed into the vessel, we're raised up, and water destroys the sin below as we're raised up from our sins. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 makes this clear. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him. You're raised up with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together, he's made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. So when we go into the water, God is forgiving us of our sins, and he raises us up, removed from those sins, now to walk in a new life. Just the same way Noah was raised up in that vessel to start all over and live a new life, we're raised up from the waters of baptism to start life anew. And just as Jesus was raised up to live now eternal life, never to die again. Romans chapter 6 says, Wherefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The same power that raises Jesus from the dead is the same power that seals us into Christ's death and raises us up to live life anew. For if we have been planted, or that word means united, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So now we, we are risen up, reborn, recreated as new creatures to come into a new world, and a world where we now belong to God and we are his servants, no longer the servants of sin. And the, the thing about that is just as Noah was sealed into that ark, God is the one who shut him in. God is the one who shuts us in and seals us into Christ. We cannot save ourselves. It is only if we have faith and obedience to God, of course, that's necessary, but it's only God's power that actually removes sin from us and raises us up and gives us new life. We cannot do it on our own. We need God to seal us into Christ. Now the blessing, when we go through this process, we're living this life, We've partaken, we have partaken of this perfect sacrifice that Jesus made. And because of that, that makes us part of God's covenant. In Matthew uh, uh, 26, verse 28, we'll read here in just a moment. Uh, but again, here's an, another visual representation. Noah was raised up from corruption. Jesus is raised up from death. And so you can be sealed into Christ, raised up from sin. You see the repeating picture here. Um, but this seals us into Christ, and it makes us part of his covenant. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And the sign that we get of the covenant, just as God gave a sign to Noah that here's this rainbow, so you can remember that I made a covenant with, between me and the earth and all humanity. He gives us a covenant sign. Not only does he make us part of the New Testament, but he gives us a, a symbol and something for us to know that we are in Christ. Romans chapter 8, that is the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit 
comes into our lives and into our hearts when we are baptized into Christ. We receive the gift that is the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we do miraculous things or have miraculous abilities, but it is miraculous that God would give us His own Spirit to dwell within us. In Romans chapter 8, he describes this. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You don't belong to Christ if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, is what Paul is saying. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. He gives us the sign of the Spirit. This is the, the earnest of the Spirit as it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe. The earnest of, of the Spirit. It's a down payment towards something greater that we can count on, and that down payment is uh, towards the resurrection of our actual mortal bodies. This body that we're in now is going to be raised up from the dead. It's going to be given new life. We're going to be transformed in this very body that we have. And all the imperfections and the impurities and the sin that plagues us and the illness that plagues us will be gone. But we must be in Christ. And we must have that seal of the Holy Spirit. And we must be part of Jesus. And when we're raised up to walk in new life, we're now living under this new covenant. Just the same way God reissued the commandment to Noah to live as image bearers of God's glory and to multiply and be fruitful in the earth. The command is the same for us. If we're restarting, we're living under a new commandment, no longer motivated by the flesh and controlled by the flesh, but now motivated by the Spirit to be image bearers of God's glory in this world and to live in a spiritual way and to mind higher things, not the flesh. And, and, and if we're risen with Christ, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, if you, be, if you risen with Him, then seek those things which are above. And we're supposed to live a spiritual life looking forward to an event that is going to take place, and that is the destruction of all things, as God has promised, will take place. That's what we're living forward to and working towards, and it will take a while, and we must do the work necessary to ensure that we are in the vessel when that time comes. And this is how we do it, by living in the Spirit, if we're in Christ. Because that time of destruction is coming, and it's going to happen suddenly, just the same way it happened suddenly in the days of Noah. Luke 17, 26 through 27. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, and they drank, and they married wives, and were given in marriage, until the day Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was all fun and games until Noah went into the ark and then the party was over. Because the destruction, though they were warned, came upon them suddenly because they were totally unprepared. Now the blessing for us is that God gives us an open warning. He has not hidden these things from us. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about the judgment. He wants us to know and expect that something is going to happen and it's coming. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3, 6 through 10, whereby the world that then was, talking about before the flood, the world and the way it was, the way it existed, 
being overflowed with water, perished. That old world is gone. And now it's something new and different. But the heavens and earth, which are now, by the same word, or the, the same word of God, the power of God, are kept in store, reserved unto fire. That world before was destroyed by water, but now the destruction is, that will happen is by fire. You see, God promised he would not destroy the world by a flood, but he never promised that he would never destroy the world. And he says here now, it's reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. God does not want us to be ignorant. He does not want us to have our eyes closed and think that nothing is going to happen and everything is going to be fine. The promise to destroy the world is sure. And he says, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, that's not a time calculation that we can use to look at numbers in the Bible and multiply it by a thousand and try to figure out the number of days or years and calculate the exact time when God is going to return and this judgment is going to happen. That's not what that is. What that phrase is telling you and me is that the day that God issued the promise is as good on day one as it is on that thousand years later. And so the promise is sure. It's, it's as good as it, a thousand years from the day that God issues the commandment. It's as good then as it was the day he issued it. It's certain. And he's not going to change his mind. And he has issued this destruction and this plan a long time ago. And so from the very day he issued it, it's just as good as the day when it comes. And he goes on, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not going to forget about the promise he made like we do. We might make a promise that we're never going to do something, and we forget about it in a very short amount of time. And maybe a month, two months, maybe a year or two passes by, and then we forget about it, and we go on, and we forget. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering toward us. Some people get the idea that because destruction hasn't happened yet, that God has forgotten all about it. And all things are going to continue as they were from the day that the world was created. No, that's not the case. But God is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want all of us to perish. He doesn't want humanity to perish. But he wants people to come to repentance. He doesn't want people to live in the wickedness and the corruption the way it happened in the days of Noah. He wants people to come to repentance and live as image bearers in, of his glory in this world. That's what God really wants. But in the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And, and that's an interesting uh, picture there. And I think it's one that, that we can relate to and make sense of. Um, I don't think I've ever had a thief come to, to my home or steal things from my vehicle. But I do know with certainty that thieves don't usually give you notice in advance that they're going to come and steal your property. They don't send you a text message or give you a call to make sure you're home or see what time you're going to be there. They don't do that because it's totally sudden and it'll take you by surprise. And that's the way the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come by surprise and suddenly it will be upon us. We think we have all the time in the world, but all of a sudden, here it is. And, and what's going to happen when that sudden moment comes? The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It's going to be orders of magnitude more severe and terrifying and scary than the flood ever was. 
And all of a sudden, billions of souls will be crying out, scared and pleading and begging, but there's nothing that can be done. Because now they're experiencing the, the consequence of the choices they made. It's not because God wanted them to be destroyed. He wants them to repent. And so the people that face destruction and will, will burn in that great heat, it's not because God is pleased by doing that or wants that to happen. It's because He's letting people have the end result of the choices they made. If they didn't want to live with God in this world, then they won't live with Him in the next. And it's not God's fault if people are eternally separated from Him. It's our own fault. He gives us the instruction. He gives us the material. He gives us the, the freedom to make the choice to follow Him. It's really up to us to obey. What can we do to avoid this? That's the blessing that God gives us now as we have time and we have breath. Because it could happen now. As, we're, as I speak, it could take place. At the end of time, everyone that are, that are inside, all the souls that are inside the vessel that is Jesus Christ, will be saved and be taken up from the destruction to live in a new world, a totally new place that is, that is free from the curse of death and all the pain and all the heartache It'll all be washed away. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26 Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and power and authority, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And, and friends, beloved, we need to be prepared that day. We need to not lose hope against that day. You know, for many years, Noah prepared for the flood, building and gathering food, and it's up to us to live in this life in preparation, each day growing and building our lives, doing the things that we must do to add the virtues that God wants us to add in our lives, the qualities, as Peter lays them out. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue, patience and to patience, godliness and God, and all of those things that God requires for us to to build and be transformed into, work on that each day as we live this life, looking forward to this day because it is coming. It is going to happen. And unless you're in Christ, you won't avoid that destruction. You'll be overtaken by that. I mean, and we need constant encouragement while it is today, the, the Scripture says, uh, says, encourage one another, provoke one another, so that we don't get overtaken with the root of bitterness, so that we don't forget the things that we need to do. We ought to be here for one another and love one another. And, and, and think about this. They were in that flood. I mean, from the, from the flood happening to the ground being dry took a whole year. And imagine, not only while Noah is building this vessel, each day working towards this, this end date of the flood happening, but even as they lived in that ark for an entire year, imagine how much encouragement Noah would have needed. Okay? It probably would have felt pretty stressful, pretty dark, to know that you're, you were saved and spared from this, 
destruction and the rest of the world has perished. And, and so we need constant reminding and encouragement about this. And that's why I think this story is important, to remind us and to encourage us to live faithfully in Christ because the story of Noah that we've seen is repeated over and over again as he was raised from inside that vessel, raised up to new life from corruption as sin is washed away with the waters of the flood and death is destroyed and all these things, or, or humanity is destroyed and all life is destroyed through this flood. So Jesus, in the vessel of flesh, is raised up from the grave, and the, the grave is overwhelmed by the power of God, and, and death now is broken, but Jesus is saved to live an eternal life. So we, in this life now, can be sealed into Christ in that same power, being raised up from our sins, and being saved from that penalty of death through, through the power of God. And then ultimately, if we are in Jesus Christ, those who are the righteous, sealed by the power of God into, that, into, into Christ, by that Holy Spirit, will raise up our mortal bodies while death and sin and all the wickedness is destroyed by that overwhelming fire. But we will be spared. This is the story that we want to be a part of, that we must be a part of. And if you want that, we must live in a certain fashion. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a great day coming, and I guess the question that remains is, are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for that time of the end? Are you living in Christ now? And if there are any here that are listening and you, th you think, I'm not really sealed into Christ, well, there's only one option if you want to avoid the destruction, is to follow the instruction that God gave, be baptized into Christ and be sealed into that power and be forgiven of your sins and be raised to walk in new life so that you can live righteously and soberly in this present world. And Christians, the, if you're in Christ we need to be reminded and encouraged about these things, and I, I know I do. And, I, and uh, my charge to us all is to help one another be reminded of these things and not be ignorant of the, the things that we need to do, but instead be knowledgeable and support each other with the Word of God so that we can all be partakers of that beautiful day when death is no longer a curse upon us, but we'll live in eternity. I want to experience that day. And I hope that you do too. If you need prayers of the church, uh, please come forward as we stand and we sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.